0: Um, not long before, uh, or not long after, Esther and I uh, started dating, I decided I wanted to get her a promise ring. I'd never actually heard of a promise ring, um, but someone told me they were a thing. And uh, and I was in this weird spot where I knew this was the person I wanted to be with the rest of my life. But um, uh, I also knew we weren't really in a, in a spot where we were prepared to get married or, or even necessarily engaged, because uh, we really hadn't been dating long enough. Um, and so this whole promise ring thing seemed to have some merit. And so Esther and I talked about it a little bit and she told me that I would have to ask her dad, which sounded insane. Um, so I went to my mentor and I was like, Is this a thing? And uh and he was like, Absolutely this is a thing. If you're gonna if you're gonna move to any level of commitment whatsoever, you need to talk to her father first and and uh and so I decided that I would talk to Esther's dad, ask if I could get Esther a promise ring. Um, we already had an evening plan. We were going to have dinner together and uh, and it seemed to me like they like me. Um, and so I thought uh, I would use this as the opportunity to ask Esther's dad for permission to get her uh, a promise ring. And where I made my mistake was I asked some friends for prayer. I uh, told a couple people in the group I was super nervous. I really wanted this to go well and I asked them, please, would you be praying for me? And uh, and they they prayed for me, and then one of them promptly called Esther's dad and told him Chris has big plans for dinner, um, uh, and that he, Esther's dad, should be extra intimidating. So not not cool, not cool at all. Um, so on the day of the big dinner, Esther's dad earlier that day sent me a 50 caliber machine gun round, had it delivered to me. When I opened the box, it was just the bullet with my name taped on it. Um, and. And when I got to her house, there was a teddy bear hanging in a noose from the front door with my name on it. And, uh, and no matter how hard I tried, he wouldn't talk to me. When I asked him a question, he just grunted. He would just grunt back at me. Um, and so we sit down at dinner. Uh, it was Esther and myself and her parents and her two sisters and we talked and we did the normal dinner thing. And, and, uh, and I couldn't find a window to, to, to ask the question, to bring up the, I didn't know I was supposed to like take him out alone and do it, but, so I, but I couldn't find a window. And through the entire dinner, I could feel Esther like mentally elbowing me, like, when are you gonna man up and ask the question? And, uh, and so finally the opportunity came. After dinner, just before dessert, all the ladies got up, they were clearing the table, starting coffee, getting the dessert place and stuff. And, uh, I had John to myself at the table. It was just the two of us. And, uh, and there was all kinds of clanging and banging going in the kitchen, it was a little cover noise. So I figured, this is gonna be my opportunity. This is, this is the best chance I'm gonna get. So I cleared my throat and I said, John, I, uh, I had a question I wanted to ask you. And boom, in a fraction of a second, everybody dropped what they were doing and flew back into the dining room to watch the fireworks. Everybody wanted to see the fireworks. And so uh, once uh, everyone was staring at me, John said, go ahead. And, and now, if you listen to John tell this story, all the ladies stood behind me like protective mother dogs and I looked like a puppy, you know, with all the women growling at him. But that is not true. That is not how it happened at all. Um, I managed to stutter out, um, you know, that I would like to get Esther a promise ring. And he came back with a promise to do what? And I was like, crap, I didn't know there was going to be follow-up questions. Um, So I managed to say a promise to be hers and to work hard and to follow God uh, until I was in a place where we could get engaged and eventually get married. And uh, And he just stared at me. For several minutes, like for a long time, just dead silence in the room. And when he tells the story, I was pouring sweat and I even let a tear slip out and run down my face. Again, not true. Um, and finally, Kathy, my mother-in-law, says, John. And it kind of broke this eternal silence. Um, and my now father-in-law um, said, you you have my permission to get us for promise ring. And this forever became one of those family stories that is totally different depending on who's telling it. Um, and we tell it often, but I tell this story because we're launching into our Lent series that we're titling, I Promise. Um, and uh, and this is kind of phase two of our, our year where we're journeying toward core strength. And I'm really excited um, about this Lent passages that we're going to be um, using because they're kind of going to serve us to build a, a good core foundation for our faith. Because um, what we're doing in this series is we're walking through the key covenants or promises. In the Bible. Uh, and the reason these are important, especially on a year where we're leaning into the basics, is because we're part of a very big story. Um, faith in Jesus is not a 21st century thing or a 20th century thing, although it gets tangled up in modern thinking. Faith in Jesus is not an American thing, though it obviously has great impact on American and American life. Faith in Jesus is not a philosophical thing, even though every great thinker has wrestled with it over the last 2,000 years. Faith in Jesus is not a behavioral system. Even though everybody who's ever come to it has had their behavior changed and many people have tried to use it to change behavior, it's not a behavioral system. Ultimately, faith in Jesus is nothing less than the story of everything. It's the story of everything. It explains why things are the way they are. It explains why we all sense deep in the core of our souls that it's not supposed to be this way. And that things are fundamentally broken. It explains how we... Uh, despite how kind of fundamentally off everything is, we still have this inexplicable hope for something better. And I'm just talking about believers. Has, has it ever dawned on you how bizarre it is that the entire human race is still trying to make things better somehow? Like, every human that's ever lived has died. Like And, and after six to 10,000 years of failing and oppression and bloodshed and death and power imbalances and just general human meanness, Most of us still wake up and hope it's going to be a good day. You know how weird that is? Why would we do that? I believe the Jesus story answers that question. I personally believe the only thing that makes sense out of the whole of human history is the Jesus story. And that story is ultimately told one promise at a time. Starting with the very, very beginning, which is what we're going to unpack today. So my hope for this series is not only kind of to look back at the history of our faith... Um, that we may better understand why Jesus is so important, but also to understand kind of who we are and why things are the way they are. So this morning, we're going to go all the way back as far as we can. Um, and if you've been here a while, a lot of this stuff uh, you will have heard um, because we circle back to these passages quite a bit at Open Table. Um, in fact, some of them made their way into our vision statement. But um, how many of you know it's important to review good things? Amen? Amen? There we go. Um, my wife probably heard me say I love you 30,000 times. I kind of did the math um, in our marriage. And, uh, but I think she'd probably appreciate it if I continued to say that. <laughs> She's never going to say, babe, I get it. Like you've, I've heard it enough. Um, you've heard the old story. The farmer had been married like 20 years. His wife started to get insecure. and said, why do you never tell me I love you? He's like, I told you I loved you the day I married you. I'll let you know if I change my mind. But... <laughs> I think it's good to review good things, things that are good for us we should review often. But um, I think there are some things that, that no matter how many times we hear them, it's good to hear them again. Um, so we're going to be reading this morning from Genesis 3, um, and then we're going to jump around just a little bit. Um, we're going to start with our first promise. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? And of course, we of course we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree of the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And uh, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and that the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took it. Uh, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. When in the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man, the woman, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. Then God, uh, then the, the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you were walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman who gave, uh, who gave me the fruit and ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all other animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will strike his heel. And he uh, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen your pains in pregnancy, in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And, the man, uh, and to the man he said, since you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. And all your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you'll have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For it was from uh, you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. And then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins from Adam and his wife. And the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing good from evil. What if they reach out, take the fruit from the tree and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the garden, uh, and uh, place a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Um, now, to be I'll be honest here. Um, in my entire adult life of reading philosophy and psychology and history and just studying human nature and even economics and politics, nothing I've ever read explains human life and existence as well as I feel that this chapter of the Bible does, um, which is exactly why I feel it's so important to circle back here so often um, and also why I think we need to, to kind of kick off this series at the beginning. Um, now, I read this entire chapter for context, but we're not going to spend much time with the actual sin committed here. Um, we're pretty familiar with the story. Satan misrepresents God's word. Um, Eve engages the snake. Uh, the snake offers her something she already has because the snake said you'll be like God. And the Bible says that God had already made Eve like God. So he made him in his image and likeness. Um, Eve looks at the fruit, sees something different than she had seen before. She goes ahead and eats it, gives it to Adam, and he eats as well, and the damage is done. Um, now, the part that we generally dive into um, here in this passage is the way that human existence was fundamentally changed in that moment. And this, for me, is one of the most profound pieces of writing in existence um, for its analysis of just the human condition. Um, because in this kind of ancient, ancient text, you see a picture of life that every single one of us can relate to. Um, in fact, I don't think there's much in human life that you can't point back to this chapter. So let's break it down. There's four relationships that were broken when Adam and Eve sinned. Um, and we talk about these quite a lot here. Um, first, the moment Adam and Eve ate the apple, they felt shame. Um, it says their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So for the first time ever, Adam and Eve were not comfortable in their own skin. They weren't. They weren't comfortable with who they are. They felt the need to cover up. Um, and it wasn't just the fact that the other person could see him it's like they they felt shame like inside like something deep down they knew something isn't right they knew that things weren't right their relationship with their own self is broken and if and and every single one of us can relate to this that feeling that i'm just not 100% comfortable with who i am we talked in a small group on thursday about how weird it is that every human on the planet has a moral code that they kind of live by and that every human on the planet doesn't keep that moral code like why would we just develop like a standard of living that we can't keep like and we all do like we all whether it's something big like i know i'm not supposed to do this and i like a big sin or whether it's i know i shouldn't eat this but it's so good like why would we set a moral code for ourselves that we know we're going to break and that then we have to feel guilty about it um you know i we, have, uh, we all have a moral code and we all fail at it. Why would we do that? Why on earth would we set a bar that we can't keep? I feel like the Jesus story answers that question. Um, but that's not the only relationship that was broken. When God showed up, um, Adam hid. And he had never hid before. It says he hid from the Lord God among the trees. When God confronted him, he said, yeah, I hid from you. When we think about that, God had never, man had never hidden from God before. They had perfect relationship, unity, fellowship, joy. It was, it was uh, obviously this was new because God came and and had to call for Adam and 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 where are you? And he was like, I, I hid from you. He's like, this is a brand new moment. And when you think about what that means and how much impact that has on the function of the world, it answers so many questions. I mean, how much effort? Um, does the world put into trying not to believe in God? It's kind of weird when you think about it. All the justifications and arguments and effort and and resources that go into not believing in something. Like, And you could argue that in the West, maybe it makes sense because the church used to be associated with power and so attempts to stop faith in God is a way of revolting against that power structure. But there are places where that's not the case. Like right now, I just read an article this week that China is hammering down on house churches. We have a missionary over there that, that works in the house church network that that I've been praying for all week because we uh, uh, the they just passed a couple more laws that like singing out loud together can be constituted as worship. And if you do it with a group of people that's not part of the state church, you could be arrested for it. That's kind of a brand new law. You can't even sing together. So if your neighbor hears you singing, they could call the police on you like they're trying everything to hammer. it. Why? The church is not a power structure there. Like It doesn't make any sense. Why would we put so much effort to get people to not believe in something? I believe Genesis 3 answers that question. From the very beginning, the relationship with God was, was broken. It's damaged. But humanity hiding from God and running away from God and putting forth great effort to sub- sub- subdue faith begs the question why and like I say Genesis 3 answers that question then when when God asks Adam you know about the change Adam turns on Eve one chapter ago he couldn't talk about it without using the word one we're one two, two will be one and now he wants her to bear the blame alone and the relationship with other people is broken and we see this played out every single day in our lives there's the old joke that I don't have time to tell the right way but a guy walks up meets another guy on a ship and they find out they're both believers in God in fact they're both Christians in fact they're both Protestants and Baptists in fact they're both American Baptists and Northern American Baptists and conservative Northern American Baptists they're both from the same region of the conservative Northern Baptist Church and as soon as one of them finds out that the other one adheres to the council of 1879 instead of the council of 1912 he says die heretic and pushes him over the ship like no matter how many things we agree on we'll find something to fight about We'll find something to, to divide us. We find some way to hate. And it's not just hate for hate's sake either. Sometimes it is, but, but more than that, it's blame, isn't it? Like we love to blame other people. We feel shame in ourselves. We feel the disconnection with God. But mostly um, we feel like, like the problem is those people. Like we, we want to turn and, and, and blame someone else. Because let's be honest, most of us don't really care what other people do. Like if they want to mess up their life, they can mess up their life. Except we, we instinctively know that it affects us. Either it's messing up our country or messing up our kids or messing up our economy or whatever. But at the end of the day, we know that things are broken, so we do what Adam did. We say, they're the problem. They did it. They're the ones that messed everything up. It's their fault. Which brings up our Lent challenge. Lent challenge. Like just talked about, I, I talked last week uh, about it a little bit, but 60 people came through Ash Wednesday um, service. And the vast majority accepted the challenge to try and fast pointing the finger at others. We decided to fast from blame and criticism. Instead, we're going to work toward repentance, repenting of our part in the mess. So we're we'll talking about that a lot through Lent as we kind of journey in the wilderness together. But the relationship with self... And God and the others were broken. But that isn't the whole story. There's one more broken relationship, and it's a truly tough one. It says, The servant deceived me. Um, She replied, That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all other animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. and pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you've listened to your wife and ate from the trees of the fruit, I commanded you to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. And I will grow thorns and thistles for you. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. But so you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And then uh, the man Adam named his wife Eve. Actually, we could skip over the rest of that. Now, uh, believe it or not, this is the first promise um, in the Bible that we're going to unpack this year. And it's a tough one. And actually what it is, it's, it's God unpacking and expounding on this verse. Where he said, the Lord God warned you, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden except the one of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, you you are sure to die. So the promise is, if you sin, you'll experience a death. And what is typically called the curse, which I actually generally call the observation because God isn't really saying, I'm going to do this to you. He's more saying, uh, this is what life's going to be now. This is what you've chosen. This is, this is the life or more, Accurately, the death that you've chosen. But that longer passage in chapter 3 that we read this morning is God explaining what this death is going to look like. What, what things are like. What road they're on now. And the short form of what God says is, life is going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. Having kids is going to be hard. Raising kids is going to be hard. The marriage relationship is going to be hard. Providing for yourself so that you can eat is going to be hard. Surviving on a planet that seems to be turned against you is going to be hard. You've chosen a really hard path. And here's the weird thing for me. I find great comfort in that. Because my life is hard. Not as hard as some, but I feel stress. I get frustrated with people. My kids don't obey. I feel shame. I wear out my body trying to make money. I, I was working with uh, Rick Hodges earlier this week and we were just telling stories about ways we've hurt ourselves trying to make a living. You know, oh yeah, i got a scar here and i got a, this broke. You know, just the things you do. I have friends who have much less than I do and their life is hard. And I have friends that have much more than I do and their life is hard. Any success story you read is full of struggles and sweat and suffering to find that success. And any tragic story you read, reads about the same. Life is really hard. And the reason I find comfort in Genesis 3 is because even the ways that my life is hard, and believe me, I have it pretty easy, all things considered. But the places where my life is hard would be completely unbearable if I thought it was supposed to be otherwise. I mean, I think a huge part of our mental health issues in our world right now are due to to this very misunderstanding. Because if you don't believe in God, and more specifically, you don't believe in the God of the Bible, and you believe that life is supposed to just work and yours doesn't, what else would you do but get depressed? Of course, if you think life's supposed to be easy and you're just doing something wrong, and that's why it's so hard all the time, that's why you have to work so hard to get through the day, yeah, of course you're going to be depressed. So reading God tell humanity that life is going to be hard feels to me like God is saying if, if your life is hard and there's a lot of struggle and it takes a great deal of effort to make it through the day, then you're right on track. I said that's the way it would be. Like you are, everything's perfect. That's exactly the way it's supposed to be. In fact, I put an angel at the gate blocking the, the easy life you were intended for. So maybe it's just me, but that's a comfort. Knowing that, yeah, it's supposed to be a struggle. I'm, I'm supposed to be tired at the end of the day. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat food. It's supposed to be hard. And what's ironic is we as humans have this tendency to, to look at the difficulty in life and somehow use it as an argument for how there's not a God. Like, how backwards is that? Like, we, we would say, man, if, if there's really a God, then why is all this hard stuff? And God is the one that promised it would be there. He's the one that told us to expect that. He explained why we naturally pull away from Him. He explained why we, why we don't feel good about ourselves. He explained why we don't get along with others. And He explained why life is so stinking hard. So when terrible things happen, it, it, it really just proves that God's not only there, but He was right. He called it. Life looked exactly like what He said it would look like in the very beginning. But praise God... That's not the only thing in this promise. Because inexplicably, God also talks to the snake, Satan. It says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and uh, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will strike his heel. And then he said to the woman, and then he goes on and on. So the, the wielder of temptation is cursed to the groveling shadows to be looked down on everywhere. And I think this is why every world religion has a shaitan character somewhere. Shaitan is how you say it in Hebrew. Like every world religion has a tempter. And I think it's because we took this, this, this groveling you know shadow creature with us, humanity, to, to look down on him the way God said we would. I think humanity just generally looks in hatred and disdain toward this tempter. But the powerful part of this final statement to the snake is this. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Because it would be pretty crummy of me to come up here and say, God's first promise is life's going to be hard. And it is, so have a good day. (laughs) That that would be pretty awful. Because in this verse, God does more than just tell us how everything is going to be from now on. He also prophesies a change. He says, here's what the snake can expect. Here's what the woman can expect. Here's what the man can expect. But that is not the end of the story. A new character will enter the story. And the snake will inflict a wound on this new player. But ultimately, the offspring of the woman will defeat the snake. And this language is really important because Jesus is the only one in history who can claim that the offspring of only a woman We talked in our last series about the importance of Jesus being the Son of God and the Son of Mary. And we find that importance all the way back in the very first story told. Because God had to deliver bad news here. He had to tell them what life was going to be like from now on. But inside that description, He hid this beautiful glimmer of hope. That someday things would change. And we're privileged purely because of where we stand in history to know that story. We know exactly how Satan dealt a blow to Jesus. And we know exactly how Jesus ultimately crushed Satan's head. In fact, we're on a Lenten path right now, preparing our hearts for the celebration of that moment in history that changed the story. And Easter is is not only present here in chapter 3 of Genesis... It's actually the heart of this whole promise and the hope that every human heart is in search of. My favorite part is the fact that that we get to glimpse into it what that hope is going to look like when it becomes a full reality. So we're going to jump real quick to the very last chapter of your Bible. If you follow in your own Bible, you can go there with me. If not, the words will be up here. The very last chapter. This is how the whole story wraps up. We just read how it begins. Now we're going to talk about how the whole thing wraps up. "...when the angel showed me a river with the water of life, crystal or clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, and it flowed down the center of Main Street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, and the the fresh crop each month, and the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations, no longer where there will be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him." and they will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. So as John is given kind of the privilege of seeing and communicating how this whole story wraps up, he tells of this cool kind of city-garden hybrid where there's trees of life everywhere and a river flowing down Main Street and And above all, it says there will be no curse on anything. I think back to the the observations that God made about human life. That I take so much comfort in. Life is going to be hard. Having kids is hard. Raising kids is hard. Marriage relationship is hard. Living on a broken planet is hard. Making a living is hard. Imagine life. Like all the things you love about this life. If you took out all the hard. It would be pretty great it'd be pretty great because there are some things I absolutely love about this life. They're amazing. If you take out all of the the, the conflict and strain and pain and grief and, and all the other stuff that came with this tragic decision that was made so long ago, it would be awesome. According to Revelation 22, that won't be there any longer. All of that goes away. My favorite part, uh takes a second to parse out, so we have to pay attention to the pronouns here. It says, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his, singular, servants, plural, will worship him, singular, and they, plural, will see his, singular, face, and his, singular, name will be written on their, singular, forehead, or plural, forehead's, plural, right? We get who's singular and who's plural, right? That Jesus, I mean, God is the singular and his people are the plural, okay? Okay. And so there will be no night there, no need for lamps, for the Lord God, singular, will shine on them, plural, and they, plural, will reign forever and ever. That's kind of weird. Like, if you don't catch that, that God has been singular in this whole passage and the, the people of God have been plural in this whole passage, it ends with they, plural, will reign forever and ever. Why is this so important? Because when God made humanity, when He made us, He made us with purpose. He gave us a job, if you like that better. He gave us work. It said this, Then the Lord God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, and they will reign over the fish and the birds and the livestock and the wild animals and the small animals. I kind of shorted that a little bit to get it all to fit. But but the point is, we were created to reign under God, in God's stead. And when John saw how the whole thing wraps up, he says, They will reign. In other words... God's plan is going to come to fruition. You don't change God's plan. Sin didn't change God's plan. God made us for a purpose, and we will fulfill that purpose. So here's the deal. The first promise we're looking at, this Lent is called the Adamic Covenant. The covenant with Adam. The promise to Adam. The Genesis 3 promise. In a nutshell, here's what it is. Things are not the way they should be. But it will not always be that way. That's the first promise. Things are not the way they should be. They're broken. They're hard. But it will not always be that way. There is hope. There is hope. And we're obviously given some more details about what the road will look like between the seed of the woman and the snake. And, uh, but the gist of things is everything is terribly broken. But God is on a rescue mission. And if we don't get that fundamental reality, none of the rest of the story is going to make any sense. If we don't get the, if we don't start from the understanding that things are not the way they're supposed to be, we will not understand why Jesus came. Things are terribly broken, but they won't always be that way. So how do we respond to this? As we launch into Lent, kind of a season designed to focus on the brokenness in life, I love that um, we're starting with the root of the problem at the very beginning. But also that we get to see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Because hope is important. But this year is a little different than most years at OTCC because this year many of us are on a journey of repentance toward Easter. And wouldn't it be so easy to sit here and, and basically play the role of Adam Only instead of saying, she did it, look back and say, they did it. right? How easy is that? How often do we do that? They did it. If only Eve hadn't listened to the snake. If only Adam hadn't followed his wife. If only they would have chosen better, my life wouldn't be so hard. But that's exactly what we've decided not to do for Lent. We decided not to blame... Others decide not to point the finger, not to criticize. And this couldn't be more appropriate in this passage because here's the deal. We live in a broken world. And that, that brokenness contributes to a lot of our issues and a lot of our struggles. But there is not a single one of us that does not contribute to that brokenness on a regular basis. We don't need to point the finger at Adam and Eve. The mirror will do just fine. And I know horrible things happen to many of us that we did nothing to cause. And and some of us are even victims of terrible atrocities. But not one of us is innocent of the broken condition of our world. We hurt people. We choose ourselves and thereby make the world just a little more selfish. We fail to love God and love neighbor on a regular basis. We, We allow fear to motivate our actions. I mean, I was reading recently of the the spies going into the promised land and coming back out and they were like man that's so hard like they were just scared they were afraid and god's anger at that is almost shocking how how angry he was that they were afraid like the fact that we let fear drive us rather than faith is scary like i read that and i was like man I, i'm motivated by fear quite a bit i think And the worst is every single one of us choose for ourselves on a regular basis what we're willing to call good and what we're willing to call evil. Chewing on that same bitter fruit that our first parents took a bite of. There may be no better story to spend time in this week as we fast what comes so naturally and has come so naturally since Adam pointed the finger at Eve. Esther and I were talking, reading through Moses, how in, in his like final speech to to the people, he sneaks in there, you know, and I can't go into the Promised Land because of you people, because you made me mad. Like we all do it; it's so natural to point at someone else to say it's their fault. If only they would get their stuff together, my world will be easier. We have to resist the temptation to blame, and instead we repent. We repent of our part. We repent of the parts that we brought into it. Because only in repentance do we find grace. The very first bunch of people to sit in your place this morning, the first audience listening to the very first gospel sermon, ran face to face with the part that they had played in it. And they had one question for Peter, the very first preacher. He said, brother, what should we do? And guess what Peter didn't say? Peter didn't say, Blame Adam and Eve. Blame the liberals. Blame Trump. Blame Gen Z. Blame the American straight white man. Surely he's at fault. Peter didn't say, Blame your parents. Blame your ex. Blame whoever else hurt you. No, Peter told the crowd of people whose hearts had been pierced by his words, Each of you, must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins, then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Each of you needs to repent. So that's it. That's how I would love to respond to this message. As we, as we look back at the very beginning of our story, the very beginning of the story of everything, at the point where things started going wrong, as we gather around the table and celebrate the hope of something better that's found in the work that Jesus did for us, Let's take a minute and own our own contribution to the brokenness. We need to repent and turn to God, like Peter said. We need to invite the Holy Spirit into our lives to help us overcome sin so that we can become an agent of redemption, helping to heal the wounds of the curse. So if you're one of the folks who wrote, I'm in on a post-it on Wednesday evening, this is our time. We need to repent. Even as we sing this last song and invite the grace of God to heal our land, we need to repent.